welcome to another special podcast brought to you by the American Bankruptcy Institute. I am Bill Rochelle, ABI's Editor-at-Large and Columnist. Our topic today is the Supreme Court's decision on June 12 in Henson versus Santander, the second case decided this term by the High Court involving the Federal Fair Debt Collection Practices Act, or FDCPA, as we will be calling it. We have two distinguished panelists today, both well-steeped in consumer law. First, we have Professor Jeff Sovereign from the St. John's University School of Law. Jeff's BA and JD were both from Columbia University, which is not surprising because his father, Michael I. Sovereign, was a professor in the law school at Columbia and later president of that university. Jeff teaches Civ Pro and consumer law, among other topics. He is a prolific writer of law review articles and law school textbooks. Notably, I should say, he wrote a law review article on how students use laptops during law school classes. I might add that his article is not complimentary with regard to students' proper use of technology. Our other panelist is John R. Bollinger, partner at the Bowman Law Firm, which has offices throughout Virginia. John's undergraduate degrees were in criminal justice and psychology, and he got his law degree from the University of Richmond. John specializes in complex consumer litigation. ABI is indebted to John because he is an editor of ABI's Volo project, which reports immediately on important new appellate bankruptcy decisions. The topic of today's podcast, Henson versus Santander, came to the Supreme Court on a grant of certiorari to the Fourth Circuit to resolve a split of circuits. The case involves the FDCPA, which is a potent consumer protection statute adopted by Congress in the 1970s. If a debt collector uses prohibited tactics, the consumer has a statutory right to $1,000 in damages, even if there are no actual damages. Also, and perhaps more importantly, the consumer is automatically entitled to recover attorney's fees if the suit is successful. Consequently, the FDCPA has become a favorite of consumers' lawyers and is also often employed by the class action bar. On May 15, the Supreme Court decided the term's first FDCPA case, Midland Funding versus Johnson. The court held in Midland Funding that the filing of a stale claim does not violate the FDCPA. In the Henson case, Santander had purchased a portfolio of defaulted auto loans, one of which was owed by Henson. He claimed that Santander violated the FDCPA. The district court held that Santander was not a debt collector and thus was not governed by the FDCPA because it owned the debt outright and wasn't collecting it for someone else. The case was argued in April, the first week that newly appointed Supreme Court Justice Neil Gorsuch sat on the bench to hear oral arguments. He was as quiet as a mouse asking no questions and making no comments. Nonetheless, he was the author of the court's unanimous opinion on June the 12th, affirming the Fourth Circuit. My first question is for John Bollinger. John, could you please summarize 
the holding succinctly. Yes, sir. Thank you, uh, Bill. Um, the statutory provision in dispute is related to 15 U.S.C. Section 1692A6, um, pursuant to the uh, FDCPA, as you had discussed earlier, and the definition of debt collector under this provision. The fact that Santander purchased and owned the debt was a critical fact in determining that Santander was not a debt collector within the meaning of the second definition of a debt collector pursuant to 15 U.S.C. Section 1692A6. The court quickly dismissed petitioner's arguments regarding textual issues within the statute and legislative intent. The court looked at the plain language of the statute and the key words owed or due another. Let's move to the professor and ask him uh, about what the rationale uh, was that Justice Gorsuch uh, employed, because from what you were saying there, John, it's beginning to sound as though this was yet another plain meaning decision by the Supreme Court. So, uh, Professor uh, Sovereign, what's the rationale? Thanks, Bill. Um, the, as John said, and it, the court focused on the text of the statute. The court spent a lot of the opinion discussing whether the word owed means owed to another at the time of the collection activity, in which case Santander would not have been a debt collector because they bought the debt from someone else. So the court consulted grammar texts, they consulted a dictionary. They talked about participles, past and present. It's a decision an old school English teacher would love unless he owed a debt. But they came down on the side of owed to another at the time of the collection activity, regardless of whether it had been owed to someone else in the past, meaning that Santander does not qualify as a debt collector. Well, so much for that. But uh, let me reflect on something. The FDCPA was adopted in the 1970s when there was no debt-buying business. And thus, Congress did not know that there would, in 30 years later, be a business that perhaps ought to be regulated. Consequently, there's a policy argument to be made that courts should adapt the statute to new business practices. And I must say, that policy argument was made by the uh, consumers' briefs in the Supreme Court. So, John, I have a question for you. How did Justice Gorsuch deal with the policy argument? Uh, they easily dismissed the policy argument. Uh, the primary basis behind them dismissing the policy argument was the fact that it was too speculative. Um, at the time, during the 70s, uh, Debt collection uh, companies or uh, claims purchasing companies were not in existence. Uh, it was designed more for the uh, uh, the companies that were collecting third parties were collecting on behalf of the creditors themselves, and that's what the purpose behind the statute was. Um, there's been a big boom over the last probably 10 to 12 years in which companies have been specifically formed to actually purchase defaulted loans and collect on those loans. So the court did conclude the fact that to make this argument at this point in time from a statute that was created back in 1977 was definitely too speculative and dismissed that argument. Hmm. Well, how about that? Uh, it uh, 
certainly does put the emphasis on Congress to update its laws in view of emerging business practices. And I think in a few minutes we're going to get into questions for you folks about uh, how the debt buying industry might change its practices in the future in light of its opinion. But before we do that, I wanted to reflect on the fact that, as I said, this was the second FDCPA opinion this term by the Supreme Court. Both of them were in favor of debt collectors. And so I have a question for either or both of you. Does this mean that we have a Supreme Court that is anti-consumer? I wouldn't necessarily say so on the basis of this decision. There have been studies concluding that the Supreme Court, at least as it was constituted before Justice Gorsuch joined the bench, um, was the most pro-business Supreme Court we've had perhaps ever. Um, but in this opinion, where the justices generally considered more liberal also joined the business side um, and where it was based on the text of the statute, I don't think this opinion um, gives us a clear guide as to what the Supreme Court will do when the text is more ambiguous. Well, that's uh, that well, is well said. Uh, I would also add to that as well that the, uh, the Gorsuch uh, opinion um, was a unanimous decision. However, the Midland funding decision uh, was not unanimous. That uh, there were uh, three justices that joined in the dissent of that opinion, and the dissent itself uh, sets forth that um, they were not in agreement with the majority uh, with the opinion of uh, the justice who made the ruling. So, therefore, I would say that there is an opening uh, for uh, possibility in the future that. Uh, that the justices could come out on the consumer side um, if the right case arises. Given the fact that the uh, court did come out on the creditor side in this particular case, the court did raise two issues that were not brought up in cert, but it's something to think about for future litigants. One is that a creditor could qualify as a debt collector not only because it's regularly seeks to collect for its own account debt that it has purchased, but also because it regularly acts as a third-party collection agent or debts owed to others. This was not raised in the petition of cert. But the bigger issue, uh, which the court raised, which was not before the court, but stated that it could be an issue in the future, was dealing with the definition of a debt collector and raising a, an alternative argument as to whether or not the business and the principal purpose of the business is for the collection of any debts. So that leaves the door open for uh, uh, the petitioners and the consumers to actually make multiple arguments, uh, and you should plead both arguments as to whether or not a party falls under the debt collector statute definition. Well, that's a very good point. So I think it's well said, as you described, that Justice Gorsuch left the door open for a different result when the complaint and the facts are somewhat different. I'd like to add on that score that the real litmus test for the anti or pro-consumer stance of the Supreme Court will come when there is another case that raises the issue that was before the court in the Spokio decision from a couple of terms back. 
the court probably was split four to four on that, and they punted on the main question, but left the door open for a case in the future which could say that constitutionally speaking, Congress cannot create a right of action where there is no state law claim that would grant relief for the same alleged wrong. And when and if that case comes back, and I suspect it will, that's going to really tell us where the Supreme Court is with regard to consumers. Let me ask you this. Uh, this was, as I said, Justice Gorsuch's first opinion since he arrived at the Supreme Court. What, if anything, did we learn about Justice Gorsuch in this opinion? I don't know that we learned much that we didn't already know. He comes to the Supreme Court with a reputation as a graceful, accessible writer, and this opinion certainly qualifies as graceful and accessible. Some of the opening rhetoric, disruptive dinnertime calls, downright deceit, those are the first words of the opinion. Um, some nice alliteration there. Uh, and there are other nice rhetorical flourishes in the opinion. But in addition, the opinion is also accessible. Uh, I don't think you need to have gone to law school to understand this opinion. Um, indeed, uh, an education in grammar might have been more helpful. Um, and so just in terms of his writing style, it confirms his existing reputation. In terms of the style of legal argument, he comes to the Supreme Court also with a reputation as a textualist, and this opinion also confirms that. Uh, he discusses the text of the statute uh, and how to interpret the words for uh, the several pages, much of, most of the opinion. Uh, and at the end, as John pointed out, he dismisses the policy argument. So this was Justice Scalia's seat, and it looks very much like an opinion Justice Scalia himself could have written. Well, I suspect that if uh, Justice Gorsuch hadn't written this opinion, this would have been right down Clarence Thomas's alley. Uh, I must say that uh, Justice Gorsuch really wrote a beautiful opinion like his were on the Tenth Circuit. For my money, he's right up there in terms of the quality of his English language, right up there with uh, Circuit judge, uh, Judges uh, Easterbrook and Posner on the Seventh Circuit. And also like the Seventh Circuit opinion, this was pretty pretty short. Uh, it was only 11 pages, which is frankly very short by Supreme Court standards, but that may be because they didn't really think it was a very difficult case. Listen, I want to go on now to the $64 question here, folks. And that is, and I think maybe I'll uh, point this question at the professor first. How do you think that people in the debt buying business are going to adapt their business practices with Henson's decision in mind? Well, a debt buyer who has the collection of debts as its principal purpose will still be subject to the FDCPA. They're only immune from the FDCPA if they can argue successfully that it's not their principal purpose, the principal purpose of their business, which, of course, is true of Santander, which does a variety of things. So I think this will place pressure on debt buyers 
who would rather not be subject to the statute to expand their businesses, maybe affiliate with larger companies um, that are not engaged in debt collection so they can argue that collection is not the principal purpose of their business, that they have many purposes, and thereby evade application of the statute. And if we have some debt buyers in that situation, which are free to violate the federal statute uh, and free to be more aggressive, subject, of course, to other restraints, which we can talk about later, um, in collecting debts, and we have some debt buyers that are limited by the federal statute, over time, economic theory suggests that the companies that can collect debts at lower cost uh, and more freely will win in a competition with the companies that can't. It remains to be seen whether economic theory is correct about that. Um, but back when the Congress first enacted the FDCPA, the statute didn't cover lawyers, and lawyers responded by advertising for uh, debt collection to provide debt collection services by saying that they could do things that the non-lawyers couldn't when trying to collect debts. The lawyers got a lot of business out of that, um, and so we may see something similar happen here. Conventional debt collectors, non-lawyer debt collectors, were not happy with that tactic and asked Congress to amend the statute to cover lawyers, and eventually Congress did just that. Um, so over the longer haul, we might see changes in the nature of debt buyer businesses driven in part by this decision. In other words, change the structure of your business so that you can evade the FDCPA. Well, if yes. I've ever heard anything that uh, companies are prone to do, it's that. Listen, let me ask a related question. And uh, John Bollinger, I think I'm going to point this one at you, so be prepared for it. This case, the Henson case, involved a flat-footed purchase of uh, basically receivables, so claims, debts. Defaulted, though they were. What about a slightly different case where somebody buys a claim, but the seller, to be sure the sale price is not too low, gets a cut of collections if they rise above a specified level? Would that kind of a business deal structure still confer the immunity that Henson entails? I think it would have to. Do, it would depend um, what on what they're retaining, uh, and whether or not it eliminates uh, the fact that it's owed or due another. Um, if both parties are retaining uh, basically an interest in the proceeds, I think that there's definitely some gray area uh, for the court to to determine whether or not. They would be a debt collector under those circumstances. I think that would be one way that they could try to uh, get around uh, or find a loophole in, in the law itself. Um, I, I know that uh, there's different types of programs out there. There's uh, forward flow agreements as well, uh, which could raise issues. Uh, and, and any of those could come under scrutiny by the court, and I think it just remains to be seen exactly how the courts will rule and the circuits, again, may split, and it may have to come up before the Supreme Court. Well, what do you think if uh, – what if a uh, 
what if a purchaser could put the receivables back to the seller if the recoveries came in too low? What about that? Would that be covered by Henson, or is that still possibly a debt that's owing to another? I think the lesson of Henson is that in interpreting this provision, the court wants us to focus on the statutory text. So if there's a way to argue that this debt is due another, then I think that there's a pretty good argument that the the, uh, collector, debt buyer, is in fact a debt collector within the meaning of the statute and subject to the statute. I think that uh, if that's the arrangement the debt buyer works out, it's running a risk um, that that will be the claim. It's certainly running the risk of litigation. If I were counseling a debt buyer, I would say structure your arrangements, your contracts, so that there is not even the possibility of arguing that the debt is due another, because if there is, um, you're going to be on the hook for what could be substantial damages. And and even if you win that case, what you've bought yourself is a lot of litigation, which most people don't enjoy. So uh, if I were counseling a debt buyer, I would urge them to use caution in agreeing to that kind of arrangement. So let me let me ask you this. Um, neither of you can respond to this question. For the owner or the origi- originator of debt, might this opinion affect pricing in the sense that is it possible that a debt buyer would be willing to pay more than simply someone who is going to uh, collect as agent for the originator? It certainly might make a difference. It might make it might put the debt buyer in a position to offer more when buying the debt. Because if you're the creditor and you're thinking, do I do I have my own collection, you know, outfit collect this, an external collection outfit which is subject to the statute, um how how are they going to how much are they going to get? given that they're subject to the statute versus a debt buyer who might be able to offer a better deal because it is not subject to the statute. Um, So it might change the economics. Creditors might start selling debts earlier in the process to debt buyers because they're getting a better return than they do from uh, having a collection agency sell it for them, uh, collect it for them. Well, it certainly makes sense. All right, then. So we have made some guesses about how this opinion will affect debt purchasers and originators of claims. Let's look at the other side of the coin. How will this opinion affect consumers? There's been some speculation about that. Uh, There's a journalist, David Dayen, who wrote uh, the book Chain of Title, and he's already weighed in saying that this decision gives some of the worst bottom feeders in the economy a free pass to break the law. And obviously it's not good for consumers if uh, people are breaking the law when they try to collect debts. On the other hand, there's a trade organization, Receivables Management Association, that has said it's not actually going to make that much difference because 
many, something like over 80% of consumer receivables um, are owned by companies who are certified by Receivables Management Association, um, and that their standards require companies to go above and beyond the federal statute. So even, whether or not the statute applies to them, they're still going to be following the rules. Uh, I guess we will have to wait and see if they're right. Um, but uh, putting aside that, uh, the, the answer to the question is going to depend Depend. It's going to be different in different states, and it may also depend on the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. Some states have their own debt collection laws, and many of those apply to debt buyers and will continue to apply to debt buyers. So to the extent that those laws offer protection similar to the federal statute, um, debt buyers will still be restrained by them. Um, but then there are states that uh, don't have such laws. Um, in it, as to the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, it's taken the position that original creditors are, while not directly subject to the FDCPA, are subject to the Bureau's power to prohibit deceptive, unfair, and abusive practices. And in 2013, the Bureau issued a guidance taking the position that many of the provisions of the FDCPA apply to original creditors as well. Not all of them, uh, but many of them. And presumably that will also be true of debt buyers. However, whether that guidance lasts much longer remains to be seen. Um, it's not a regulation, uh, and so a new director could revoke it. The current director, Richard Cordray, his term expires in July of 2018. There have been rumors that he will leave earlier uh, there have also been rumors that President Trump will fire him. Um, and in addition, the House passed a bill, the Financial Choice Act, which would revoke the Bureau's UDAP powers, which is how the Bureau gets the ability to impose its guidance on original creditors and, by extension, debt buyers. So for now, debt buyers should be wary of violating the provisions of the FTCPA, at least those mentioned in the guidance, uh, but there may come a point where they have more freedom. I would add to that as well that I believe that this case is a unique case uh, where you have a, a company that, that was declared to be a consumer finance company uh, in the pleadings themselves that when parties are making pleadings or uh, setting forth arguments, you should set forth multiple arguments, uh, for instance, in this particular case where they pled the second definition as to debt collector. They should probably plead, if there's a foundation for it, multiple uh, arguments as to whether or not the company is a debt collector, uh, not only under one provision but multiple provisions uh, of the FDCPA, just to cover every basis. Um, also, uh, you know, including state uh, state laws, like the professor said, uh, any type of claims under state law um, is, is going to be critical as well uh, in conjunction with with the FDCPA. And you know, again, I think that this is a unique situation. Uh, again, as the professor stated, that a majority of the debt purchases out there um, would fall under the first definition. Um, and I think Santander was a unique one uh, in terms of them purchasing uh, 
$3.5 billion worth of claims from Citi Financial, uh, but their business is much larger than that. I think it's going to surround, uh, future litigation will surround the first definition, uh, which would be whether or not the principal purpose. I think that's where a lot of the litigation is going to come out after this decision as well. So getting facts together and pleading that is going to be very, very important. You know, you make a very good practice point. That is to say that when you craft these complaints, make as many allegations as you can within the ambit of Rule 11 about the the debt collector and how it's, uh, or whether it's a debt collector covered by the Act. Because what I've heard repeatedly from bankruptcy and district judges is that they get an enormous number of FDCPA suits, but they all settle, and almost immediately, because the debt uh, collector finds it cheaper to pay $1,000 and minimal attorney's fees rather than mount the cost of defense. So that being the case, if you can craft a complaint that will survive a motion to dismiss, maybe what you're going to get is a settlement. Well, folks, this was the last of the Supreme Court three bankruptcy decisions for this year. So far, the court has granted certiorari in one important bankruptcy case. That's uh, Merritt versus FTI, which will have to do with the safe harbor under Section 546E of the Bankruptcy Code. There has not been a date for argument set yet in that case, but likely as not, it should be argued sometime around November, I would guess, with perhaps a decision sometime in maybe around uh, February, depending upon how or whether the court is decided. ABI will be there. We will let you know when and if the Supreme Court grants certiorari in any other cases. Uh, the last time that they will be granting certiorari for the next term will be uh, the last uh, Monday of this month, and so we may not have any more grants for bankruptcy cases before the court adjourns in uh, at the end of June. However, the first uh, week of October, chances are we may get grants in some other bankruptcy cases. As I said, ABI will be there. We will report when there are grants. We will report on oral arguments, and of course, we will report the same day when we have further decisions from the Supreme Court. That being said, Professor Sovin, Mr. Bollinger, I thank you very much for your time. You certainly have educated me to a significant extent about the importance of this decision. And uh, let's adjourn, and we will be with you again when once again the Supreme Court speaks. Thank you, and good day. 